Right, let's get started. Hello. Uh, hello. Welcome to episode six. Hello. You said hello twice now. So, uh, we're recording this on the Thursday, the 12th of December. Election day. Election day. With a bit of luck. Uh, by luck, I mean a bit of effort and hard work on my part. Then this will be all edited and released before we know who the next government is. Wowzers. Yeah. So, have you voted today, Nick? I have. For third person in the line. Third person in the line. I was controversially turned away from the polling station this morning. Tory tactic, I would say. Mm. It was a Tory plot. Yeah, it wasn't a Tory plot. Somebody had forgotten the alarm code for the community centre. <laughs> <laughs> That's all sorted now. Uh, so we probably shouldn't talk too much about the election because we don't know what's happened yet. Also, it's not in the Asia-Pacific. So no, we should but it has it. consequences for the Asia-Pacific. Uh in a very limited way. So, do we have any update on our kind of statistics? So, statistics, um, exciting news. I don't know if it's true, if there's exciting news. I don't know if I do have any update on statistics that I want really? to. Really? Are we, are we influencers? So basically, what I'm asking you, Ed, is are we influencers? So, what I have observed from our statistics is that we appear to have a core group of around 60 people who listen to the pod within 24 hours of it going out. Right. Which is quite encouraging and, and interesting. It is. But and to then, be an influencer, Ed, I was listening to the radio this morning, oh. it's 40,000. 40, so We need 40,000 followers for well, us to have a living wage. So much to ask about here. Yeah. So, so our 60 is not the end. So that's 60 oh, within the first okay. 24 hours. And then we get dribs and drabs throughout the rest of the week. Uh, and our average uh, our average audience is still around 125. So it's quite a lot of dribs and drab. But yeah, 40,000. So 40,000. 40, and we've got 125. Yeah, so we... But I so mean, 40,000 is to make a living. Would that be one person making a living? Yeah, no, I think it's most so, influence. So we need 80,000. Oh, we would need 80,000. to yes. make. And when you say a living wage, does that mean like what the Tories renamed the minimum wage? <laughs> no, no, no. A comfortable standard living. I mean, I, I don't know the the mechanics of it, to be honest. So your comfortable standard of living is quite different to mine, isn't it, Nick? Yes. With your dramatically enhanced professorial salary. But yeah, so maybe we will have to sell cosmetics in order to boost our power. Cosmetics? They say that this is the, the key influencers are usually young women. This is not a strategic plan. No, let's, that was a Baldrick kind of plan. I'd have used another word beginning with B. Uh, so feedback from last week's pod. Graham Bagley's been back in touch. Oh, Graham. Is he a drib and a drab, or do you reckon he's one of the top 60? Graham is one of our very first listeners every single week. Not a drib and a drab. He gets in touch very quickly after every podcast. He sent us another joke. He was quite pleased that we read out his joke last week, so he wanted to have another go. And here's his joke. Maybe we can try and do this. Maybe this could become a regular section. Uh, Graham. Graham, if you're up for this, this will be a regular section. Graham's joke. Right. Graham's joke. Joke of the week. Jo- well, let's just call it Graham's joke. Oh, okay. Well, maybe, right. maybe Talia Klukas can suggest us a better name because she's yeah. better at naming sections than we are. Yes. Right. So, we, Talia, we need a name for Graham's joke section. Graham, it needs to be sort of tangentially connected to the Asia Pacific. So here's his joke. What's the most popular cat's name in China? I don't know. I think you could have got this if you thought about it. Yeah, I'm not thinking about it. 
Chairman Meow. I, I, do you know what? I actually, I like that one. That's quite a funny one. It's all right. It's all right. I, I don't think, think it's his best. It, it has reminded me. I've always said that if we got a cat, and I used to have a cat, but if we got another cat, then I would call him Jushi. That would be the name that I would give the cat. Explain this, it. This could fall flat. It might do. <laughs> it's but... going to fall flat. And in contrast, Graham's Joker looked quite good. And it's supposed to be a play on words in Chinese. But I have to right. say that most Chinese people that I've said this to didn't find it very funny. But... I think it's fun. I think it's clever. So, as you know, the word for cat in Chinese is Mao, which is the same word as Mao, as in Chairman Mao, but yeah. uh, with a different time. Yeah. So, so Jushi is Chairman. So, yeah. Mao Jushi would be Chairman Mao. So, right. Mao Jushi would be Chairman Cat. So, yeah. if you just called the cat Jushi, and then his English name could be Chairman. You're not laughing. No, I mean, I get the joke. I think it may, it's just not good. All right. What would you call a cat? I wouldn't have a cat. Good choice. Do you still have that cat? No, it's dead. My God. Why would you bring up my dead cat? I know. I mean, that was like... It was 19 years old. I know. When I saw it, that thing... I mean, it was 19 years old. My little boy arrived, and within two months, it lost the will to live. (laughs) It sort of very visibly gave up. (laughs) It was just like, ah, this isn't really worth the effort anymore. (laughs) It lost the will to live. Rest in peace, Anakin. Not getting another cat. No, I would I didn't know they lasted 19 years. So, uh, Ed's advice of the week. Don't buy a cat. They last too long. Um, critique of the week. Critique of the week. I have one to start us with. And this, this is one I picked up actually towards the beginning of the week. Oh. Um, and that was a case of book burning in Gansu province. Is this something that you, you're aware of? Well, you brought it to my attention the other day. And uh, yes, uh, so I think lots of people will find it quite a shocking image. And I think maybe as an academic, it feels even more shocking. And when you think about the history of book burning, and I know that you can probably talk a little bit about yeah. uh, what that kind of signifies. And, and especially, well, not especially, but certainly in China as well, it has a particular kind of history. It does look fairly shocking. I mean, I suppose for me, it's some of the the use of terms. I mean, obviously, it's, it very much is a call of legal, illegal and improper material. I mean, this is how it's being portrayed. So let's get to the bottom of what do we mean by illegal and inappropriate material. So recently, I think it's October, though, you know, if I'm wrong, please forgive me. But I think it was in October that there was a a very central government order down to the provinces that all primary school and secondary school libraries needed to be, and I quote, firmly cleansed um, in order to, again, in quotes, create a healthy and safe environment for education. So um, particular kinds of books, books that talked about certain subjects, religious books in particular, um, have been ordered to be removed from school libraries. And this is, or this seems to have come about because of this. Um, and so a lot of the books that discussing things such as philosophy, particularly non Chinese philosophy, religion, books that discuss democracy, these are the books. But the burning of text is uh, is one thing. But I think this I think this has there is a larger question that I think one needs to ask, and it is actually one that has been asked by certain social media within China, and is whether or not that we're seeing a return to some form of new cultural revolution. And I think this is particularly interesting. But this idea of book burning, I mean, this book burning has significant history i mean the one was within the cultural revolution i mean book burning but it's the association with book burning in the past right back to 213 bce with uh Huang and the burning of the text was accompanied by the 
live burial of 415 Confucius scholars, wasn't it? So uh, that's a widely popular story, isn't it? So that uh, around the time of Qin Shi Huang, that there were sort of forbidden texts and the result was that books were burnt and hundreds, was it hundreds of scholars? Yeah, I think there's something like 450. I think I'm reading that somewhere. But I actually read something, and again, I'm going to do that thing where I say, I read something this week. I can't remember where I read it, which isn't a great way of illustrating my point, that says that actually this probably isn't accurate. So it's sort of, it's a, it's one of these stories that's sort of built up over a period of time that reflects sort of what was happening in terms of forbidden texts, but probably wide scale burning of books and burying alive of scholars probably didn't happen at that point in time in that way. Right. Nevertheless, the symbolism of the book burning is, is still there and is still right. a point one. I think you've been reading The People's Daily again, haven't you, Ed? Nothing wrong with The People's Daily. It's a fascinating read. <laughs> no, but I mean, the idea that, I mean, even within the Cultural Revolution, which we know obviously a burning of books and burning of texts did accompany with systematic arrests, beatings of scholars or people who were advocating for the protection of text, right? So although we've not seen anything beyond just this one particular article, I mean, it was quite an interesting one because it seemed to be fairly slow to get out. Right, so I, I can't remember now where I first read the original of the article, but it very, very quickly became part of the international press. And it's not really been picked up much beyond this. Well, the thing was, it was one of those stories that starts on, uh, so I think it was on Weibo. So it's just a post that's on Weibo, and then that sort of gets shared, and it becomes viral, and at some point somebody picks it up, and then... So that kind of story does take a little bit longer to sort of filter out, and particularly because, ultimately... The evidence of this story is just one picture. You said earlier on that you weren't sure if maybe this looked... There was a speculation that is this the, like the beginnings of a new cultural revolution. I do think that's slightly over-egging the pudding. Oh, the, the pudding has been egged. <laughs> the pudding. Well done, that's quite early on as well. You just want to get over and done with, right? Yeah, well, now it's done. Yeah, well, you know, I forgot last week and then I had to edit one back in halfway through. So, pudding, egged. Pudding, egged, deal with it, move on. Yeah. yeah. So I don't... We're not at the stage of a cultural revolution yet, but I don't think we're heading down that path. But what it is interesting is that these books were obviously they were being burned and it was deemed appropriate to take a picture of it and share that on social media. And I mean, that is a way of saying, look at us, we are following the particular line and we, it's a, it's in line with some of the things you see in other countries, maybe even in this country as well with, uh, closing of libraries. Which which will either have stopped or been aggressively <laughs> increased, depending on the results of the election. Yeah. So our cultural revolution is the closing of life. <laughs> yeah. I think the point that I was trying to make was that... You don't think there's a cultural revolution. I don't think it's a cultural revolution, but it's interesting that it's this sort of thing which is deemed to be a good idea to be showing visually and sharing to sort of burnish your credentials as loyal, because this is all about being loyal to China and through being loyal to the Communist Party by following this particular line. Right. right. Uh, and so it's interesting that this sort of activity is thought to be a good idea to share as look what we've done this week, because that's what was happening, right? I mean, it's, it's not like somebody captured this. It wasn't the paparazzi. No, no, no. You're right. You're right in that sense. But at what point, mean, my question then to you would be, at what point does it become a cultural revolution if we are systematically cleansing particular materials. So it's being dictated of what material is appropriate and what material is inappropriate. At what point does the removal of all of this constitute a cultural revolution? So many threads that we can pick up here. Firstly, you're right to say that it's sort of, it is being dictated. So topics are 
topics, specific texts, specific areas are being dictated as not being appropriate, not being suitable, and that's why those are being removed. But the actual burning of those books was not dictated from the very, very top. So okay. the exact parallels with Mao's Cultural Revolution, are just they're just not quite there. The other thing to say is that the last time there was a Cultural Revolution, we didn't have the internet. And lots of stuff is still available, even though there was, of course, the massive censorship that exists in China. That censorship can be got around. It also isn't necessarily permanent. And so the burning of books is not the destruction of knowledge in the way that it used to be. It still carries that really deep symbolism that you talked about earlier right. on, but it doesn't destroy our records in the way that it did in the pre-digital era. So they need to burn the internet. Uh, Yeah. The other thing I would say is, I mean, I'm not sure we need to say, I'm not sure that's a useful thing to do, to put particular lines and tags on this and say, this is a cultural revolution, at what point does it, you know, I'm, okay. not, I'm not saying your question was rubbish, just a little bit. Well, you were to pol- uh, it was, you, you, what was it, a polite, a polite, it's not, this isn't a whinge, oh, okay. this is probably a polite dig. A polite dig. Yeah. yeah. That it's not, it's, the Cultural Revolution refers to a specific period of time in China's history, which, yeah. you know, has so much tied up in it. And I don't know if it's useful to, to use the same terminology. Right. Be- because you'll be sort of implying that it's just like it was in the late 1960s. Right. Okay. Which it isn't. And you can fairly simply show that it isn't. And that sort of delegitimizes the original point you might be making, which is burning books is bad. Yes. It's not good, even if you're cold. Is burning all books bad? So I, I read a book once. It was about this uh, tea trader in Taiwan. His name was John Dodd. And I <laughs> see where you're going. Yeah. yeah, for those not aware, that was a book that Nicky wrote. The way you can tell that this story is not true is that I began it by saying that I'd read the book. And I've clearly never read a a book that you've written. Um, So the other thing is to say... Are we still talking about book burning? So the book burning story, actually, just before I came in to record this part, I was on Twitter. You you may know that I've returned to Twitter recently, Nikki. It's very exciting. I'd almost forgotten what that world was like. No doubt I will will leave Twitter again because it's it's rubbish. But uh, a story that I did see just before I came in to start recording this... This is the one about Piers Morgan. It's not the one about Piers Morgan. Piers Morgan go fuck himself. It, it was an update on this story, actually. So the two people who are pictured in that photograph burning the books are going to be disciplined for what they've done. But key is they're not being disciplined specifically for burning the books, but for sparking a kind of outrage. So they're basically, they're not being disciplined for setting fire to books. They're being disciplined for having shown this image around the world, which has caused an outrage. Okay, great. Um... Other things in the news. I think one of the really big significant news items that I think we should definitely talk about this week is the situation in The Hague with regards to Nobel laureate Aung San Suu Kyi defending Myanmar against Gambia's accusations of systematic genocide against the Rohingya. Uh, Yeah, so it was interesting. It's 28 years ago this week that she received the Nobel Peace Prize and sort of marking that anniversary. She's there in The Hague and they're defending the very military that kept her under house arrest for sort of more than two decades. I think maybe for for our generation, we're of the same generation, uh, it's quite difficult to get our heads around because... Even whilst, you know, in the time that I've been teaching at this university, when I first started here, I'd had to do 
um, I had to do one particular lecture which is about the role of women in East Asia. I chose to focus on particular uh, prominent women who've had significant influences and talk about their stories and the way that this is the impact that they've had on their particular countries. And I spoke about Aung San Suu Kyi. And this was before she'd actually returned to government and sort of made this peace deal with the military there. And so, you know, I talk about her in really glowing terms as this defender of human rights, this Nobel Peace Laureate. And to see her complete, in our eyes, completely turned around now to be one who is sort of, I mean, denying, denying facts. I mean, it's hard to say precisely what has happened in every single set of circumstances, but to suggest that the military's response was for the large part proportionate. And we should say she did accept that in individual circumstances, individual instances, it might be feasible that they'd acted in a disproportionate way. But she did not accept that this was a deliberate attempt to drive out the Rohingya from Burma, which it obviously is. And it's so well documented by, by people with much greater knowledge than me and who are on the ground there. There's so much out there. It's, it's so hard for those of us outside of Burma to get our heads around the person that she's become in defending that military. And I found, you know, I mean, she's been that person for a while now, but I found it quite difficult to see her there in The Hague saying those things. Um, I think we should remember, though, that the base of her defence for human rights was on the persecution of Burmese. She was always a defender. Yes, please, some more coffee. Thank you. Um, She was always a defender for Burmese. And that hasn't changed. So I think we we shouldn't lose sight of this. We shouldn't lose sight of what it was that she was championing for through her years of um, house arrest um, was for the the Burmese. Um, But I think... I think you make a good point. I think you make a good point. And what what I've been thinking about this week is a couple of things. One is sort of along the lines of what you've been saying is that this it doesn't necessarily represent a complete about face of Aung San Suu Kyi. What it shows us is that there's other aspects of her life, her personality, her values that we had previously never explored. And so when you say she was she was defending the Burmese, well, we we understood that up that time. Sarcastic air quotes around understood. We understood she was what we didn't understand was who she considered to be the that's Burmese. Right. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And that's exactly the point um, I was making. And when we start looking at some of the figures, I mean, it's really, really clear that the the part of which that the Gambia have launched proceedings against is this Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Crime of Genocide. I mean, if we start going through some of the examples of what that means, a mass murder, forced displacement, rape, other sexual forms of sexual violence, it is very clear that this has been happening on a systematic scale with regards to the Rohingya people. But I think it's also quite important to to note is that obviously within the Hague is the International Court of Justice, where there's only been three occasions in the past of which a country has been brought to the International Court of Justice, and in no occasion has there ever been a country tried for this. So it's always been unsuccessful. In all three occasions, it is failed to get through. The only exception to this would be in the case of Srebrenica. In the case that it was agreed that that was genocide but what wasn't tried it wasn't serbia itself but rather the blame was put on bosnian serbs it's going to be quite interesting to see how this plays out my my particular feeling is that that the case isn't i mean for us i think it's very clear the case is very clear but the legal basis from which that she will defend Myanmar, i think we'll find a similar results and i find that to be fairly unacceptable 
Well, uh, we should probably we should probably reserve judgment until there's been a judge because again, not a legal expert. I'm not an expert on international law, but my understanding was the evidence is barely overwhelmed and really, really well documented. I mean, that's one of the problems with proving something like genocide is that. It, I mean, it is, understandably, has a very, very high level of proof. There's a huge amount of things that need to be documented. Or there is the things that you've talked about as that we know have been happening in Burma are very, very well documented. So I'm fairly hopeful that this will result in Burma being found guilty. I And I, I too. Do you think it's interesting that it was the Gambia that brought this? It is interesting. I mean, perhaps we should look more into that. Shall we move on to our next one? Um, our next one is you. So a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned Bougainville was having its independence referendum and that we would know the result after two weeks. Well, those two weeks are now done. So although we currently don't know the result of the UK election, although our listeners might when they get around to listening to this. We do know we Bougainville. do know the result of the Bougainville referendum. And it's uh, fairly overwhelming. So of so the population of a total of 300,000, um, 206,000 people were eligible to vote uh, 181,000 did vote. So, I mean, that's a turnout of over, well, it's a turnout of about 90%, which is pretty it's impressive, it, particularly in a region where you've got widespread illiteracy. I think that that's quite an achievement in democracy in itself. And um, the results were 98% in favour of independence. So that is overwhelming. So uh, do we have a new country? Well, not yet. So... Whilst this is, uh, whilst the referendum is authorised by the Papua New Guinean government, it's not binding. So could be a Catalan <laughs> thing. Actually, a bit like the Brexit referendum. It wasn't a binding referendum. We could still say that. No. We probably can't now. Well, we'll find out. So it's not binding. They don't have to abide by it. But I think with that level of pressure, it does. It would. I mean, it would clearly be anti-democratic not to allow this to take place. I guess the mechanism and the structures that need to be in place are, are what comes next. Do they have a flag? Absolutely, do have a flag. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We'll find, on, uh, we'll, on... we'll find the flag. We'll put it on our on our page. Yeah. Yeah. So we do have a quote from the um, the Papua New Guinean Minister for Bougainville Affairs. He says, "Shit, I'm out of a job." <laughs> No, uh, he he did refer to the result as being credible, but he asked for sufficient time for the rest of the country to absorb the result, which sounds on the face of it like a, a reasonable request. I guess I just hope that this is a peaceful and constructive transition. There's no reason that secession by a part of one country from another needs to be bloody uh, and unpleasant. And there's no reason that they can't have a constructive relationship in the future. But obviously they've had that quite horrendous civil war in the past so i hope that we don't see a return to see that. a return to anything resembling that yeah, yeah. all right all right um we're starting that to slightly run out of time so pacific oddities pacific oddities you've got one for this week haven't you yeah so after the um after the pacific curiosity which somewhat fell flat last week oh, um, oh i know over overwhelmingly our listeners were against the idea of the pacific curiosity i love the way you keep using this overwhelming overwhelming I, the, my private messages and mm. stuff like that yeah. ed you're full of sh- Look, if you handled our social media, you would know that that 100% of the messages I received on this said it would be better if we returned to Pacific Oddities. 100%. So one person. So, we're returning to Pacific Oddities. Okay, that's good. I like Oddity. Have you found an Oddity? Well, I have found a bit of an Oddity, yes. Um, I'm not sure if you watched Miss Universe this week, Nick. Um, I forgot. Yeah, did you forget it was on? I forget it was on. One thing that struck me, what's the difference between Miss Universe and Miss World? Do I really need to explain the difference between World and Universe? But are you then going to suggest that Miss Universe is bigger because people from outside of the Earth can take part? They are allowed to take part. But 
They just don't. It's like Sinn Féin in Parliament. It's, it's not a lot like Sinn Féin, is it? No. So anyway... <laughs> <laughs> on the uh, yeah, so I, I don't watch Miss Universe, but there's uh, apparently there is there, there are several sections. So you have an overall winner, but you have various different categories as well. And one of the categories is the National Costume Award. And uh, the presenter, whose name currently escapes me, I'm pretty sure he's American. His surname is Harvey. Yeah, is it Stephen I'm... Harvey, David Harvey, Mike Harvey, Mike Harvey. Pete Harvey. I tell you what, I'll check it out afterwards, and if any of those are correct, I'll leave that in as the edit. If not, I'll I'll probably just leave this discussion in. Yeah. Okay. Right. Let's do it. Somebody Harvey. Yeah. Anyway, uh, he announced the winner of the national costume. Yeah. And uh, he announced the winner as the Philippines, and went over to interview the lady in what was quite a remarkable. He referred to it as the national costume. I mean, there's far too much fruit. fruit. <laughs> far too much fruit on it for it to be. For it to be a national costume, it's just, it's not sustainable. <laughs> so, um, and then she grabbed the microphone. I wouldn't say, you know, grabbed is the wrong word, but she, she took the microphone off and took to, to firmly make, correct. Firm, firmly, but not rudely, make the point that she's not from the Philippines. She was there to represent Malaysia. Yeah. And then the host, uh, quickly made the point he was simply reading out the auto cue, which also yeah. suggests you're not paying attention to who the people are that you're actually speaking to, otherwise you'd remember that you spoke to her earlier and she's from Malaysia. Right. But never mind. Um, at, what, what was interesting about this is then it then turned out that he had actually got it correct. He had read the right auto cue out. The Philippines had one. He'd interviewed the wrong contestant. And I think I'm going to put up photos of both of these ladies in their costumes. Uh, and I think you'll see that the correct decision was reached. Yes, I, I, I was quite surprised to know that. I like the way he also calls them by their country. Like, this is Malaysia. Yeah. yeah. Not Miss Malaysia. or Miss Mrs. Mal- Mal- Yeah. Or, or Gemma, whatever her actual name is. <laughs> from Malaysia. Yeah, Gemma it, from Malaysia. <laughs> but yeah, it wasn't. It said Malaysia. And then she called, he called the other one Philippines. So, mm. Philippines that sat over there in the crowd. Sorry, right? Yeah. Soz. Um, so, a little aside to this story also is that the same presenter four years ago also. So, it's not like the Oscars. They don't have a different presenter every year. It's the same guy does it every year. Imagine that being your job. I don't, what would you put in your seat anyway? Presenter of Miss Universe. I guess you would. Yeah. <laughs> so, it turns out that four years ago, he announced the winner of Miss Universe as... Colombia, uh, and he'd got it wrong because it was, in fact, do you know which country it was? Malaysia. No, it was the Philippines. It's, does he have like some kind of anti-Filipino? Well, that is what I'm starting to wonder. So maybe Miss Universe is biased against the Philippines, or maybe he just thinks that that's their names and that what Colombia and Malaysia are uh, just people. Or Colombia from Philippines. Oh, maybe that's maybe that was it. And he I thought, mean, I think if he's done this every year, he should have figured it out by now. Yeah, yeah, actually. If your job is presenter of Miss Universe, you really ought to have some idea which one's from the Philippines and which one's from Colombia. Yeah, you should do. Yeah. I, I think it's funny that when you see these things about people miss, people who are reading Autocue, and then they're reading through it, and then obviously clearly not paying attention. It's a bit like you when you do your lectures, isn't it? What, reading from Autocue? Just reading the lecture slides, having no idea what's reading. You know that a lot of our listeners would know that that's not the case. Yeah, but another good portion don't. <laughs> if we have 60, at least 30 don't know, and 30 do know. It's, it's yeah. 125. Oh, yeah, because we've got the dribs and drabs. Yeah, dribs yeah. and drabs. Don't forget the dribs and drabs. Yes, yes. But we still need we need more dribs and drabs for us to make a living. Yeah. So probably at this point we should stop talking about Miss Universe because I've got office hours to get to. Yeah. And there may be students sitting outside again. Yeah. So um, so maybe we bring it to an end by encouraging you to, if you're enjoying this pod, share this with your friends and encourage them to become our new dribs and drabs. 
Yes. Here's to the new dribs and drabs. Here's to the new dribs and drabs. Nick, are we going to do one of these next week, or is this going to be our last one before Christmas? Let's see how the news goes. See if anything happens. Oh, something's going to happen, mate. Let's do oh. one more before Christmas. All right. Maybe we will dress we'll do up it. in costume. We're going to dress up for a podcast. Like, and we can maybe have a photograph, and then we can post it so people can see what we were wearing on that thing. I mean, there are ways in which we can film it. You need a new f***ing hobby, mate. All right. I didn't realise you had such opinions. So we'll wrap this up. We will do. So we'll do one more before the year's end. So maybe we'll do a Christmas special slash review of the year, even though we've not been going for a year. But we could do like a, a quick look back at what happened in the Asia Pacific over the last twelve months. Like, I like it. Twenty nineteen. And I think we should do our best to find a Christmas themed oddity. Okay. Right, that's the deal. We'll do a review of the year. If something important happens in Asia, which it probably won't in the next week, then we'll cover that. Um, and then we'll do a Christmas-themed oddity. All right. So, um, in which case, this has been fun. Let's do it again sometime. We just might. <laughs>